are following several major stories tonight. In a moment, the latest from a dramatic day on Capitol Hill where lawmakers tried to untangle the chain of events that resulted in the worst security breach in more than two centuries, as Capitol Hill security officials testified for the first time. But we begin with what we're learning about the condition of golf icon Tiger Woods, who, has, who was seriously injured after his SUV went off the road and rolled down a hillside in California. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department just wrapped a briefing with reporters where we learned that Woods remains in serious condition with injuries to both legs. I'm joined now by NBC News correspondent Steve Patterson at Harbor UCLA Medical Center where Woods was taken earlier today. Steve? Joy, the latest coming from that press conference gives us a better picture of what it was like on that scene when Woods was being assisted by first responders who got on scene fairly quickly. The biggest uh, impression that we're getting now is that Woods was conscious, that he was talking to first responders. In fact, when one sheriff's deputy asked him his name, he replied, Tiger. Uh, these were obviously extremely serious injuries. He was taken to the hospital in stable but serious condition with those injuries to the legs. Nothing from the hospital so far, Joy, on the condition that he is in now, although we did hear from his manager that he was taken to the hospital, sent to surgery. Uh, should say, though, this is not the closest hospital to that accident location, according to authorities in that press conference, that there was another hospital nearby that was a little bit closer. This hospital, about 20, 25 minutes by ambulance or so from the actual crash scene accident. If he had been in a more serious situation, a life-threatening situation, one of the deputies there said, one of the officials at that press conference said he would have likely been taken to a closer by hospital. And again, he was alert, he was conscious, he was talking to first responders on scene. They also say there was no sign of impairment from Tiger Woods on scene. By all the on-scene testing that they did in communications with Tiger Woods and taking him from the scene to the hospital that they had no indication that there was any sign of impairment from Tiger Woods. Obviously, a lot of this uh, is going to be figured out as the investigation continues, as his status becomes more apparent as he leaves uh, any sort of surgery or post-op surgery that he's in right now as they're working on his legs. But uh, as we know right now, Tiger Woods involved in that single car accident by himself, uh, extremely injured on his lower legs or, or on his extremities uh, overall, taken into surgery, uh, in stable but serious condition, treated, uh, hospitalized, and again, uh, getting treatment for those injuries sustained. I uh, should say one more thing about, they talked about the area uh, of L.A. County where that accident occurred. It was on a steep incline. I'm sure you've seen images of the scene. That incline uh, can pe catch people off guard, according to authorities. That area infamous for S-curve turns, for those hairpin turns, for those steep inclines that come out out of nowhere. If you've driven anywhere in L.A. County, those hillsides uh, can catch a lot of people off guard. They say they've had several accidents in that area. They're not sure if that has contributed to the accident here, but obviously that, along with other factors, they're investigating as we speak. Joy? All right, NBC's Steve Patterson, thank you very much. Much appreciated. Okay, let's turn to the other big story today. For the first time since January 6th, we heard from the former top security officials responsible for the U.S. Capitol, as well as the acting chief of the D.C. police. Together, they painted a devastating portrait of disarray, poor communication, and bad intelligence, all culminating with their forces being overwhelmed by the MAGA insurrectionist mob. Here's former Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund. The events I witnessed on January 6th was the worst attack on law enforcement and our democracy that I have seen in my entire career. These criminals came prepared for war. 
Now, let's be clear. The Capitol Police is unlike any policing agency in America. With 2,300 sworn officers and employees and an approximate budget of more than $400 million, they have one prime directive. They are responsible for securing the Capitol complex, its members and their staffs, and they answer only to Congress. So for them to say that they were not prepared to do their one job at the U.S. Capitol is an inconceivable scandal. You just heard Sun say that the mob came prepared for war. But he never saw the FBI report warning of just that, that extremists had planned to wage war on the Capitol. In fact, Sun said he learned just yesterday, seven weeks after the attack, that his agency actually did receive that FBI report. I actually just in the last 24 hours uh, was uh, informed by the department that they actually had received that report. How could you not get that vital intelligence on the eve of what's going to be in a major event? Thank you, sir. I know that's something that's going to be looked at. Uh, I think that information would have been helpful to be aware of. The hearing also cast a damning light on the Department of Defense. The chief of D.C.'s Metropolitan Police said he was stunned by the Pentagon's hesitation to dispatch the National Guard. I was just stunned uh, that, you know, I have officers that were out there literally fighting for their lives. And, you know, we're, we're kind of going through, you know, what seemed like a, an exercise to really check the boxes. Uh, and there was not an immediate response. This hearing was unusual for another reason. Some of the people asking the questions have a lot of explaining to do about their own roles that day. Senators Ted Cruz, Josh Fist in the Air Hawley, and Ron Johnson, three of the most pernicious perpetrators of the big lie that incited the attack, are now playing judge and jury. In fact, Johnson tried to defend the MAGA mob, suggesting it's all just one big misunderstanding. And to make that absurd case, he quoted the firsthand account from a member of that mob, someone who also happens to work for a right-wing think tank and claims that Trump supporters were lured by provocateurs to attack the Capitol. He said that the mood of the crowd was positive and festive. Many of the marchers were families with small children. Many were elderly, overweight, or just plain tired or frail. Traits not typically attributed to the riot-prone. Some obviously didn't fit in. And he describes four different types of people, plainclothes militants, agents provocateurs, fake Trump protesters, and then disciplined, uniformed column of attackers. I think these are the people that uh, probably planned this. Senator Johnson went on to claim that nobody saw this attack coming. I guess he missed all the times the former president called on his supporters to join him in Washington on January 6th to, quote, stop the steal and promised it will be wild. I guess he also missed the portions of the impeachment hearing when the House manager showcased the gruesome footage of the violent Trump-supporting attackers that day. Would you expect anything less from a guy who literally said that the deadly assault on the Capitol didn't seem like an armed insurrection to him? I want to turn to Congressman Benny Thompson of Mississippi, chair of the Committee on Homeland Security in the House, and Elizabeth Newman, former Assistant Secretary for Threat Prevention and Security Policy in the Department of Homeland Security. And I want to go to you first, um, Congressman Thompson, because there are a few things that were absurd about what we heard today, at least from the questioners. Let's start with Ron Johnson. The idea that in his mind, the attackers were not supporters of Donald Trump. And if they seemed to be, they were pretending to be supporters of Donald Trump, that they were agents provocateurs, who I assume he probably anticipates were Antifa, which was not there. Um, and that the people who stormed the Capitol were frail, 
overweight and had their children with them. I didn't see any of that in the footage that I saw. Um, you are the chair of the Homeland Security uh, Committee in the House. What do you make of, of Ron Johnson's assessment? Well, uh, his assessment is absolutely wrong. Uh, Joy, everyone saw who broke into the Capitol. The insurrectionists were prepared to do everything possible to harm members of Congress, Capitol Police, everyone. The intelligence that was provided even talked about the persons who were coming. Uh, if you look at how they were dressed, everything says they came there uh, to do harm. Uh, they didn't come there to observe the counting of the votes. They came there to stop the steal. And so that's what we saw. There's no evidence uh, whatsoever in the files that I have reviewed, my committee has reviewed, that says anything Senator Johnson says is true. And, and sir, you're literally suing organizations that were involved, including Donald Trump, that were involved in creating this nightmare for the United States. Uh, along the uh, defendants, the people that you're suing, are you suing any Antifa groups? Well, they, they were not involved in it. There's no evidence they, they were there. Okay. Uh, are, you uh, suing, so are you suing any grandparents and people who had children with them? Uh, no, I'm not suing any Black Lives Matter uh, individuals or anything. I'm looking strictly at the people who showed up on January 6th, broke into the Capitol, put Thank all you. our lives at risk, uh, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers. And I want former President Trump and Rudy Giuliani, who obviously was his lawyer at the time, who encouraged all this. Uh, we have yeah. mountains of email, Twitter feeds, encouraging people to come. We now have testimony from people who've been charged who saying we came to Washington because President Trump told us to come. He needed help. You uh, indeed, uh, Giuliani said trial by combat. He said that on the ellipse. Elizabeth uh, Newman, another thing that was pretty alarming that we heard today was the head of the Capitol Police at the time, Mr. Sun, saying essentially that the Capitol Police did not have the intelligence about the fact that you had armed insurrectionist right wing groups like the Oath Keepers, like the Proud Boys, who were coming to the Capitol prepared for war. What do you make of the idea that, as he says, they didn't get that intel until yesterday? I, it's kind of shocking because any number of people on the outside were, were raising alarms just based on open source intelligence. There's an open source intelligence group that I follow, and they had raised the alarms uh, at multiple days prior to January 6th. So I, I question that. Um, I'm not suggesting that they were lying under oath, but I, I don't think that they fully um, are, are accurately conveying the problem. It's, it wasn't an intelligence sharing problem. It was not understanding the intelligence that you had. And, and here's the other thing. I heard them say, like, there was no intelligence that they were going to storm the Capitol or that the attack was going to happen there. 
you know, I think we've gotten lazy and we seem to think that intelligence analysts are supposed to predict the future. That's not the role of intelligence. Intelligence is supposed to give you their best assessment, the likelihood of something happening. And even if you're the security professional, your job is threat management, you are always prepared. We've learned the hard way over and over again over prepare. So if you get that threat assessment yeah. that there might as there might be a potential for violence that there are people focused on the capital, you over prepare and hope that you don't need it. Um, but they kind of seem to do the opposite and there's probably a number of reasons why they they underestimated the threat that well, was presented to them. But I don't buy that this is an intelligence failure. I buy that it's a yeah. a, a lack of understanding of the threat. Well, I want to get to what you just said, Elizabeth, because you served in this admin- in the in the previous administration. You know what's sort of unspoken here, in turn, including in the Pentagon being so reluctant to deploy the National Guard, is that they didn't want to deploy the National Guard against Trump supporters. That they didn't want to anger Trump and his supporters by having by sort of festooning uh, the Capitol and the ellipse with security. That they didn't want to have too many cops there because they didn't they didn't think that Trump would like the look of it and they didn't want to make his supporters feel unwelcome. That's what I read. Is that close to what you're feeling is is the case? I I think there are multiple factors at play. That is certainly a huge one. Um, Nobody wanted to upset the president. Uh, There there was rightly a recognition that what happened in Lafayette Square in June of last year was horrid and should never happen again. Um, But we're talking about a different situation. We didn't have threat intelligence that somebody was going to try to do something in Lafayette Square. The, The overreach was that it was cleared for basically a photo op and they used military uh, forces and, and combat uh, approaches um, to, to clear peaceful protests. We had indications that there were people in the crowd, not the entire crowd, but there were a, a group of people that were planning violence. It would be a completely appropriate to make sure that you're prepared for that violence. So I, I, I feel like there's probably lots of reasons that um, and lots of uh, bad decisions made along the way, including the very obvious one of unconscious bias. Um, and we need to just be yeah. transparent about that. That is a very real thing. When you talk about domestic no, terrorism, people think it's a bunch of white guys that, you know, get in bar fights and can't get their act together yeah. and can't do much well, harm. And clearly but, that's not the well, case. Clearly we have threat actors with malicious intent and they were coordinated and they could have caused a lot more harm than what happened on January 6th. Indeed. We, we are out of time, out of time, but very quickly, very quickly, I'm going to get in trouble asking one more question. Benny Thompson, Representative Thompson, you've been contacted apparently by Proud Boys who want to talk to you. Can you very quickly tell us what it is that they want to talk to you about in, well, in, as part of this lawsuit? Well, the comment was, and, and I directed them to my lawyer, Joy. Basically, I told them, whatever you want to say, you need to talk to my lawyer. They said, no, we want to talk to you. Nope. The lawsuit's filed. You talk to the lawyer or I'll see you in court. Wow. Congressman Benny Thompson, Elizabeth Newman, thank you both very much. And up next on The Readout, Republicans love to decry cancel culture, but are gleefully trying to cancel a Biden nominee because of her tweets. Hmm. And oh, the irony, the theme at this year's CPAC annual conference is America uncanceled. Seriously, but it's CPAC that just canceled a longtime Trump supporter from appearing. Oopsie. Plus, when Ted Cruz wasn't furiously tapping away at his phone during today's insurrection hearing and thus ignoring the testimony of Capitol Police, he was whining about people needing to show respect for others. 
the same guy who abandoned his freezing constituents. You know, here's a suggestion. Just don't be a yeah, like, right. like, like, just, you know, treat each other as human beings, have, have some degree, some modicum of respect. Take your own advice, Ted. But no, 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 Ted Cancun Cruz, as terrible as you are, you are still not the absolute worst. Though I know you're trying. Always a terrible bridesmaid, never a bridezilla. Tonight's big reveal is coming up. And be sure to join us on Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern for a special edition of The Readout. I'll be joined by Dr. Anthony Fauci and members of the Congressional Black Caucus to discuss racial disparities in the COVID crisis. Go to msnbc.com slash town hall to be a part of our virtual audience and to submit questions for our experts. The Readout continues after this. I carry my life experiences with me everywhere I go. It's those experiences that give me hope for the future. If an indigenous woman from humble beginnings can be confirmed as Secretary of the Interior, our country holds promise for everyone. President Biden's nominee for Interior Secretary, Representative Deb Holland of New Mexico, would of course make history as the first indigenous woman to head the agency. So it should come as no surprise that ahead of her confirmation hearing today, Republican senators bankrolled by oil and gas interests were slamming her record of environmental stewardship, including Montana Senator Steve Daines, who vowed to block her nomination and later tweeted she'd follow a radical anti-American energy agenda and called her hostile and divisive. Now, those kinds of smears should sound familiar from attack ads currently running against two of President Biden's other nominees, his pick for Associate Attorney General, Vanita Gupta, and his choice for Health and Human Services Secretary, Javier Becerra. Biden appoints Vanita Gupta for a top job in the Justice Department. Biden promised unity, but this is a dangerous appointee. Health and Human Services. Biden appointed Javier Becerra to run it. He's not a doctor. He's a radical partisan, an activist, not a doctor. Yes, 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 that's right. Everyone's a radical, dangerous, scary. But you probably also noticed something else in all that fear mongering. As the Huffington Post notes, it's President Biden's nominees of color who have faced outsized opposition. Perhaps the most vehement opposition has been somewhat bipartisan, the nomination of Neera Tandon to lead the Office of Management and Budget, which now hangs by a thread after West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin decided to put his stake down along with Republicans, opposing her nomination over old tweets that he called partisan statements. Now, it's worth remembering that Manchin greenlit Orange Julius Caesar's nominee Rick Grinnell as ambassador to Germany back in 2018. Now, you remember, may remember Grinnell as basically a professional Twitter troll. As a spokesman for Mitt Romney in 2012, he deleted his own tweets targeting, among other things, Newt Gingrich's weight and his wife's looks, as well as Michelle Obama's exercising. But I guess since his trolling was bipartisan, that was okay by old Joe Manchin. Oh, and Manchin's also currently undecided on Holland's nomination for Interior. Hmm, what's up with you, Manchin? Devo much? Manchin told Politico he had a nice conversation with Neera Tandon, and his opposition isn't personal. Quote, there's a time for bipartisanship to begin, he furrowed. We'll see what happens on the other side. With me now is Mara Gay, member of the New York Times editorial board, and Susan Del Percio, Republican strategist. And Mara, I'm just going to go right to you. The Neera Tandon thing bothers me. I'm just going to be honest. I, I, she is a, a friend. I like her a lot. She's a very smart, brilliant person who would do a good job in the, in the, in the, in the role. But more than that, we just spaced four years of mean tweets, misogyny, racism, 
hate speech on Twitter from the former president. And now all of a sudden people are all up in arms over mean tweets. Um, uh, what your thought? I'm just gonna let you talk. <laughs> sure. I, you know, the double standard is striking. And I think the hope here is that the Democrats have learned the, the hard earned lesson of Merrick Garland, which is you just have to ignore this as uh, nonsense and red meat that these Republicans are choosing to throw to their base. Um, and you have to move forward, build a coalition and do the work that the American people sent you to do. Um, I think getting caught up in th these kind of faux uh, bipartisanship, um, you know, I guess kind of like activities is really silly because real bipartisanship is important. Building consensus among issues that Americans need, like vaccine rollout, like infrastructure, that's important work. But here we have a situation where this is opposition for the sake of politics and nothing else. And so that's where you really have to say elections have consequences. And you get your folks in line and you whip the votes, you do the work and you ignore the noise. It is it is a thing, um, Susan, that it galls a lot of people about Democrats. If this was on the other side, um, when Donald Trump wanted to nominate anyone, what, whatever their background, whatever their horrors of their past, he would just say, I'm just going to put him in. If you don't like it, I'm going to make him acting. And that would be the end of it. Uh, here with Democrats, you're already hearing rumblings that they may be you know, pushing another person, Shalanda Young, who's up for a deputy OMB post, that maybe some in the Black Caucus are saying, let's push her instead in case near attendance um, nomination goes down. Uh, by the way, she's also a woman of color. She will also be portrayed as a radical. She will also be unacceptable because they're just blocking or attacking every woman of color or man of color that Biden nominates. I don't understand what Democrats don't understand about that. Well, I do think Neera Tandon is, is a, separate a separate issue versus all the other nominees. First, I think that a president gets to choose his cabinet, and that should be, unless there is some fatal flaw, which there usually isn't because they get vetted, they should be supported and endorsed by the Senate. That should be and confirmed by the Senate. That's a no-brainer. The difference with Neera Tandon versus the other people that you mentioned is that she was overtly political and attacked a lot of those senators there. I am not saying that the so senators are not, So uh, was Grinnell. Wait, Susan. So was Rick Grinnell. Let me finish. So was Rick Grinnell. Let me finish. The point that I have is that the Senate Republicans are always hypocritical with anything in the last four or five years. So it's not surprising that they're doing this. It is hypocritical. It is, I think, wrong. There's nothing in her record that says she shouldn't be qualified. I'm just stating the political fact. Now, as far as the other nominees, I think that the Republicans are desperate. They can't fight the president on COVID relief because 70 some odd percent of the American public face it. And they are looking for an us versus them issue. And they are doing it overtly and ugly and a, grasping at straws to run those type of ads because they have nothing else. And it's pathetic and it's wrong. And I couldn't say it enough times, but it's exact. They are delivering exactly. They're trying to take Joe Biden's message of uniting our country and, and foiling it every single way they can. But again, they can't do it on the important things, the stuff that Mara is talking about. They can't do it on COVID relief. They can't do it on moving our country forward, build back better. What can they do it on? 
race. And that's what they're doing. And it's fundamentally wrong. Well, I mean, and the, and the people of color see it. They, they notice that all the ads are people of color. You know, Mara, I think about, I, you know, I know Joe, Ban- Joe Manchin has his own politics in West Virginia. However, he's now spoken up about only two nominees, both are women of color. Um, I don't understand what his politics actually are in this instance, because he's also spoken out against the checks that people are desperately needing for relief. He's placed himself in a very strange political position. I don't get it. Do you get it? Because he was for a lot of nominees that one might think were quite objectionable. I mean, he was for, you know, he, he was OK on Kavanaugh. He was OK on lots of other people yeah. in the Trump administration. Yeah, you know, I, I honestly don't get it either. But I will tell you that the, the fact that we are having a conversation right now about what's inside Joe Manchin's head is just a, a very frustrating example of the kind of structural disadvantage faced by the majority of Americans in this country because of the Electoral College and the map, uh, the Senate map, that we are held hostage as a country by the whims of a of a senator from a very small state, comparatively, um, who's a part of the majority at this point, uh, but really doesn't represent a majority of Americans. And that really has a direct line to uh, the the lingering effects of the filibuster um, and and the the blocking of the expansion of democracy. And so a majority of Americans voted to put Democrats in office, not because they want hyper-partisanship, but because they want the country to work again. And they want an end to racist, fascist politics. And, And you know what? I think that's the message that the Democrats need to seize on. I think if they keep doing the work and they keep a, a tough line on these nominations, they can probably, they'll be okay. But they really shouldn't allow themselves to be hostage to the whims of, of a single uh, Democrat from West Virginia. Because if, if this is the opening note, what's it going to look like a year from now um, on far tougher battles? Indeed. Once they get one person, they will come for more. And I, I, you know, Biden could just make her acting. That's what that's what uh, the previous guy would have done. Mara Gay, Susan, Susan Del Percio. Thank you both very much. Spirited conversation. And still ahead, as we mark one year since the killing of Ahmad Aubrey in Georgia, a new report finds Colorado police had no reason to detain young Elijah McClain, a detention that ultimately led to his death in police custody. More of the readout after this quick break. We now turn to some breaking news. The police officers who placed a mesh hood on a black man in Rochester, pressing his face into the pavement for two minutes until he died of suffocation, will not be charged in his death. That unfortunately not so surprising news comes as we mark one year since Ahmad Aubrey was shot and killed by three white vigilantes with police connections as he jogged on a street in Georgia. There are also new developments in a separate case that occurred 18 months ago when 23-year-old Elijah McLean died after police officers in Aurora, Colorado, restrained him with a chokehold that was that has since been banned. Now, warning to our viewers, the body cam footage we're about to show you is disturbing. So take a moment. Um, and here we go. Stop right there. Stop. 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 
Stop. I have a right to stop you because you're being suspicious. Well, okay. Turn around. No, Turn around. Actually, your hands Turn around. Stop. Stop tensing up, dude. No, let go of me. No, I am an introvert. Please respect the boundaries that I am speaking. That's what I was doing. I was just going home. An independent investigation has now concluded that police had no legal basis to stop or use force to detain McLean, and that responding paramedics sedated him with a powerful sedative ketamine without conducting anything more than a brief visual observation. Joining me now is Philip Atiba Goff, co-founder and CEO of the Center for Policing Equity. And Philip, thank you so much for being here. The Elijah McLean case is just infuriating. I, you know, lived not too far from Aurora growing up there. I'm somewhat familiar with that sort of police, uh, police department. But, you know, the idea that these police officers would say they have a right to stop you because you seem suspicious. He wasn't doing anything. He wasn't committing a crime. It almost feels like if you're black, you actually don't have the right to even walk the streets in this country. Well, that's what we saw. I mean, if you if you hear we're used to hearing the refrain, stop resisting, stop resisting. But the officers in this case said, stop tensing up. At, at what point are we supposed to have superhuman control of our bodies when armed representatives of the state grab us on our way home, don't explain why, and then tell us how we're supposed to move? I mean, the, the last words, the last words of Elijah McClain, I mean, some of these just hit different. He says, I'm an introvert. I'm not like that. I don't do those things. You all are beautiful, and I love you. Please try and forgive me. While his life is being, they're drugging him without asking him because they've just decided that like an animal, he needs to be sedated. Communities are beyond tired. They're beyond enraged. I don't think we have words for the emotions in this kind of space. But when you say it feels like we don't have the right to, we don't have the right to do anything, when law enforcement can do everything and there will be no consequences all on one day. We just saw this happen in Dallas where a, a young man is walking home in the freezing cold because it's freezing and there's an ice storm and a snowstorm and he gets detained. And just because he doesn't need any help and he's like, I'm fine. They're like, well, we're going to arrest you and you're going to sit in jail overnight for nothing. It, this is, it's literally for nothing, just for walking. Um, Joe Biden tweeted um, about um, the other case, Ahmed Aubrey, which is slightly different because there's actually something you can do because these guys aren't currently cops. T- uh, Biden tweeted, a black man should be able to go for a job without fearing for his life. Today, we remember Ahmed Aubrey's life and we dedicate ourselves to making this country safer for people of color. Let me play his mom who did an interview with NBC News. You can't move on. I cannot. I try. But when I laid him out to rest back last February, I, a part of me left also. And um, it's painful. I'm hoping, I pray, because I have another son, I have grandsons, and I pray, I pray. I mean, this, this, this was essentially a chase down lynching. Um, but the difference here is that Mrs. Ahmed Aubrey's mom, her name is, um, is Wanda Cooper Jones, she can actually sue. She has filed a federal lawsuit against the men charged with killing her son um, and the police and prosecutors that she says conspire to protect the killers. Um, she's filed a million-dollar lawsuit. She can sue these killers, these people who killed her son, because they're not cops right now. They're, they, have, they have cop ties, but they aren't cops. What does it mean that the, the only chance of getting justice is if the killers of your, of your child, of your son— are not currently police officers, because if they were cops, she couldn't do much. 
Yeah, I don't know in what other universe it makes any kind of sense to say, oh, I hope they don't work for me so that I can hold them accountable. I hope they're not representatives of the government that I elect so that I can hold them accountable. Right. I, I hope that they're not supposed to uphold the ideals of the, the flag that I'm supposed to salute and the country I'm supposed to, have to pledge fealty to so that I can hold them accountable. The idea that law enforcement can't be held accountable because they're law enforcement, it's, it doesn't make no kind of sense. And that's why people are talking about more than just fixing the systems that are there. They're talking about rooting them up and building new ones because we can imagine much better outcomes than our people being murdered this way without any accountability from the people who get paid from our tax dollars. There are better ways, right? It's, it's just not reasonable. Yeah. It's absurd to imagine that it has to be like this. You know, and I talked in the, the, the top of the of this um, block about this police officer who put a hood over a man's head, threw him on the ground, so basically suffocated him to death. Nothing's going to happen. They're never going to get charged. And what we're just talking about right now is ending qualified immunity, because right now all these big settlements that you're seeing are against the city. So the taxpayers pay, not the officers. If individual cops could be sued for assaulting or killing someone, do you think that would actually change the way police so, I mean, it's it's been a debate for a long time, and I actually think it's kind of a, a tricky issue um, because of the way that the insurance process would work. I'm for holding folks individually accountable, but then you end up with unions end up, end up paying out. Um, so all of it is just messed up. I think, though, we can do things so there are less killings. I am in favor of folks facing accountability if they kill someone, but I'm much more in favor of people not dying at the hands of folks who are paid for by tax dollars. You know, and I, I think if we, we got to say it in places like San Francisco and Berkeley and just recently Ithaca, New York, right? They're talking about there's no reason to send law enforcement to a good portion of the places where they're going, where folks are having, having a mental yeah. crisis, a substance abuse crisis, or they're wearing a t-shirt when it's winter outside. That's not something that should be met with deadly force or the threat of it. So yes, we can talk about individual accountability, but I'd much rather be re-envisioning the systems and the money we waste both on murder and then paying out of our own pockets for the restitution of that murder. All of that is madness. And especially after this yeah. summer, if we were returning to a world where this is what's normal, then we have failed ourselves. And there is no reason to give up at this point. Indeed. And people, stop calling the police on random black people because you, you're uncomfortable with them being in your neighborhood. Stop calling the cops on, on black people for no reason. It's a people Please problem, not just a police problem. People need to stop doing that. And that's what the, the, the people who call 911 on just any random black man you see in the street are also responsible for this. That's a whole other conversation. Philip Atibagoff, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here. And up next, tonight's absolute worst. There are calls from House Democrats this weekend to hold an urgent congressional hearing over postal service delays, demanding answers from the man who's run the agency for just two months. We've had mail that has been left in the plants. The way they're stopping it, the mail's just not making it to transportation. This photo provided to NBC News by a postal employee shows packages the employee says have been sitting at a distribution center in New York for nine days. You may remember those scenes that played out last year, like everything else that the orange one touched. 
It turned to chaos. In fact, the misfit of Mar-a-Lago had plans to privatize the Postal Service. And he wouldn't have been the first Republican president to try. In the 1980s, Ronald Reagan led his party in their push to privatize just about every service that the federal government provided. While privatization appeals to some people, we know that it, when it comes to private companies, it's more about the bottom line than serving the public interest. And it hasn't always worked out with prisons, hospitals, and our children's education, to say the least. That brings us back to the Postal Service and the Postmaster General, the former president, inflicted on the country, Louis DeJoy, who is, in fact, the absolute worst. DeJoy is the first person to lead the agency in more than 20 years with no direct experience at the Postal Service. He did, however, donate more than $1.2 million to the Big Losers campaign and has passed business ties to some of the Postal Service's private competitors. And it didn't take long for DeJoy to spring into action, slashing spending before potentially opening up the bidding. The sweeping changes over the summer included eliminating overtime, closing mail processing facilities, removing mail sorting machines, and reducing post office hours. All of this during a pandemic when people relied more than ever on deliveries. A federal judge later blocked the changes, but the damage was already done, causing a backlog of undelivered mail. You probably felt those effects and maybe you still do today. As an added bonus to Trump, the changes threatened to delay millions of mail-in ballots. Now, fortunately for all of us, democracy prevailed. So with President Biden now in office, why hasn't he given DeJoy the boot? Unfortunately, he can't. At least not yet. Its nine-member board of governors chooses the postmaster general. Now, fortunately for Biden and the rest of the country, there are four open seats for him to fill, allowing for DeJoy to be returned to sender. But with less than half of Biden's cabinet confirmed, it could take some time before those nominations are even made. And in the meantime, DeJoy, the absolute worst, will be free to continue to make his changes to your mail service. But tomorrow he'll be back in the hot seat testifying in front of Congress and he'll have to answer some questions about new reported changes that it could include higher prices for consumers and slower deliveries. And that is next. Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. Unfortunately, the unofficial Postal Service motto did not take into account Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, who is expected to implement big new changes to your mail service. According to two sources familiar with the move, the plan to eliminate first-class mail, which includes letters, magazines, catalogs, among others, would slow down mail that typically arrives within two days and make it more costly to deliver for both consumers and businesses. In a statement, DeJoy said the plan is not yet final, but expect the proposed changes to be among the questions DeJoy receives when he appears before Congress tomorrow. Joining me now is Congressman Jerry Connolly of Virginia, one of the members of the House Oversight Committee, who will be questioning DeJoy. And I'm sure you have lots and lots of questions. Um, but I want to start with a, a memo from the Republican um, side of the Senate in which DeJoy allegedly personally ordered United States Postal Service overtime cuts. And the section of the memo is titled USPS Operational Shift to Reduce Exorbitant Overtime. And he discusses in it the recent plan to put forth uh, the, the overtime reductions, basically slashing the, the work schedules. Do you know if that has been reversed? 
Well, we know that uh, he did that as soon as he became Postmaster General this past summer, as you pointed out, Joy, and we know that it had a very disruptive effect. Frankly, the pandemic only got worse after that, and more postal workers got sick or had a quarantine because they were exposed to the virus, meaning we needed more overtime, not less. So uh, whether he's contemplating revisiting that a policy to reinstitute it or not, I can't confirm, but I think it would have a disastrous impact on delivery to customers. Well, and also on the workers themselves. I mean, we know that postal workers are yeah. disproportionately people of color. They're disproportionately veterans. The idea that you would be cutting their overtime um, for co communities that are especially vulnerable economically anyway, in a lot of ways, is, is pretty awful. Um, but there's another aspect to this as well. You have the Postal Service being the only agency I've ever heard of that has to pre-fund their retirement benefits for 75 years, which makes them right. basically financially insolvent. Is that something that the Democrats can reverse now that y'all have control of both houses of Congress? Uh, working with Chairwoman Maloney, there's a group of us on the committee that are, are going to put that in a what we call a skinny bill, one of the financial provisions that would really make a difference to the Postal Service. You're absolutely right. That was a provision the Republicans put in in a lame duck session in 2006 under the guise of reform, and it created an enormous debt overhang on the Postal Service that is unnecessary and unique to the Postal Service, as you said. I mean, no one else is required to do that. Um, and so it probably adds five to six billion dollars a year in debt that is purely a paper requirement. And since Congress created the problem, we need to fix it. Yeah. And, and the, the, the other issue, of course, is this um, thirst for privatization. Um, and deregulation. And these are things that Republicans sort of, it's their bread and butter. But with DeJoy specifically, because he was involved with businesses that compete with the Postal Service, there is a particular stench around him. Because, you know, if he were to, like, start selling off postal assets, when he left the gig, he'd be in a position to maybe acquire some of those assets. Do you think he ought to be investigated, number one, for what he did to the Postal Service, that in, to, to the extent that he interfered with it, and to whether he himself has an interest in purchasing assets that may be sold off by him? Certainly, I believe there ought to be a thorough examination of his behavior and his actions that led to the disruption and delay of mail. It really helped erode public confidence in voting by mail, that part they succeeded at, and um, and really brought disrepute on a revered service that everybody relies on every day, during a pandemic yeah. especially. Whether he has a personal conflict of interest, I, I don't know. I think there's certainly grounds for being concerned about that, which is why he should never have been hired in the first place by the uh, enabling Board of Governors. You know, the Postal Service is one of those entities that everyone actually loves. It, it, you know, your rural communities, it's the only way they can get mail in a lot of ways. You know, those uh, private entities don't necessarily serve rural communities, whether you're Republican or Democrat. Do you think because it is so a universally beloved entity that is unlike anything anywhere in the world, they don't have that in Europe the way that we do, that this could be one of the things Republicans might not stand in the way of? Or do you think they're just in such a zeal to privatize it that they don't care? Well, I think the hard ideologues don't care. Uh, 
But I think there are a lot of Republicans from rural America who most certainly do care because of the very point you just made, Joy. This is in the pandemic. Our lives are upended. We can't our kids can't go to school. We can't go to concerts or restaurants. We can't work normally. We've got to use uh, telework. But the one constant every day for every household and every business in America is that mail gets delivered. And yeah. you fool around with that at your peril politically. And so I, I do think your point is well taken that there is a, uh, a, a potential coalition of Republicans and Democrats who would rise to defend the Postal Service uh, if the ideologues really tried to privatize it. But they're yeah. certainly doing what they and can to sabotage it. Yeah, in the meantime, and hopefully DeJoy won't be there much longer. We'll, we shall see what happens. Congressman Jerry Connolly, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time this evening. Uh, and one more reminder to all of you to join us. Thank you on Friday at 7 p.m. for a special edition of The Readout. I will be joined by Dr. Anthony Fauci and members of the Congressional Black Caucus to discuss racial disparities in the COVID crisis. Go to msnbc.com slash townhall to be part of our virtual audience and to submit questions. That is tonight's Readout. I'll be back here tomorrow at 7 p.m. with special guest Ron Klain, President Biden's chief of staff.